I hope you all had a good safe fourth and that you're here because you uh, um, had a good weekend, extended or not, and uh, um, are interested in us at least talking about uh, some of this. Since it's a small group, if you have a question, I've closed down the, the chat window where I can't see it <clears throat> so that I have everybody's face up. So if you have a question, just wave at me and we can stop and talk about it. What I'm going to do in, in short overview is I'm going to, we have a, <clears throat> I'll give credit where credit's doing this. One of the the beginnings of me being in education was largely um, um, teaching uh, investment analysis courses for the Council of Residential Specialists, now the Residential Real Estate Council. Um, and that started back in 2002. We did a two-day course. We analyzed taxes and properties and everything and did in a, a long five-page Excel form. Um, and did a financial management rate of return. Um, we have since created a one-day course out of that where we just use the APOD, which is annual property operation data, to do the exact same thing. And so what I'm going to do is give you in a short form what we do to analyze just any regular property in quick, easy format. You can Google and get what I call an APOD online really easily. There's no specific one. They all do the exact same thing. I'll show you the one that I use. Um, and I'm happy if anybody wants me to share mine with, I'm more than happy to, sh to share it with you. That's not a problem. It's just making sure you know what it is and I'll show it to you and I'll pop it up. This is not hard. It's really easy. And, and it answers a lot of questions that people often get when talking about investment properties. And, and just to be <clears throat> honest with you, in the last two weeks alone, I have gone through with other agents, clients, um, from Little Rock, one from Hot Springs, several from Fort Smith. Um, but I've gone through this with their clients to help them out um, simply because they didn't know um, um, uh, how to analyze it properly or exactly what their clients were asking them. So as we figure out um, and put this together and we start um, looking at it, I think you'll find it to be helpful. And, and I'll go through the different analysis that people um, talk about, because the, I think the biggest issue is, is that the language is uncomfortable to people sometimes. And with the language being uncomfortable, um, when a client says, what's the cash on cash return, they have something in their head, but they may not know exactly what it is. Or they say, what's the cap rate? They may or may not um, know exactly what they're talking about or what's a equity buildup or what's a before tax rate of return or what's an after tax rate of return or what's the... Um, whatever the scenario might be and just knowing the vernacular and the language and and appreciating um, what an investor might be asking you if they're an investor let's start with investors so there's there's a lot my joke has always been um, I probably sold 2,000 people investment properties and I probably only sold 500. Um, people a home to live in. And the reason is, is because what I found out is, is a whole lot less people buying homes to live in than there are people that can buy an investment property. So I started focusing on that portion of my business a long time ago, because I felt like there's always somebody to invest in real estate. There's not always somebody buying um, to live in a home. And so in any market, when I don't have any buyers at all, I can find an investor to invest in uh, real estate uh, when I don't have another buyer. I can call a doctor, I can call a lawyer, I can call a friend or a neighbor or mom, dad, and somebody will buy if I find a good property. <clears throat> so I can just search for good properties and then I go find a buyer to buy it. And it makes real estate a little bit different and a lot, a lot more opportunistic 
<clears throat> as you start controlling exactly the way the market will work for you. So from a general standpoint, the, anybody can be an investment in real estate, but I tend to see a couple of different people. One is the young um, couple or young person that is um, early in their career and they want to think about investing and they've, they've watched some video or they've heard somebody discuss real estate as an opportunity for investing. And so they invest in real estate um, as a means of planning their future and having a retirement. And this is an excellent way to make money in real estate. Um, it's an excellent way for passive income. And it's talked about on TikTok and YouTube and everything else now. And at nauseum, actually, there's so many people that have this the best idea for investing. Um, and really, in my opinion, there's no best idea. There's a lot of ideas and every one of them's a different opportunity. Um, the other person that I deal with typically is that person that's reaching retirement or and has retired has money um, saved up, it's either cash or in the stock market, and they're wanting to move it into real estate so they have a steady income, rental income from that particular cash money that they already have. And so they're looking to maximize um, or and stabilize the, the money they already have existing out there. And in either one of those cases, um, the, the idea is, is for me to be able to provide them information and data so that they can make what's the best decision for them uh, so that they they know that the investment they're making is is sound investment. It has potential return that they want to have, and that they can understand what that return actually is. And the third category is that first time investment person that just um, is randomly um, found by you or in contacts you because they saw a property that they they want to buy, or they watched a flip or flop television show on TV, or um, they um, know you're in real estate and. Um, they really want to own real estate because it's a very, uh, uh, makes them feel good to be able to point at something and say, I own that. And by the way, there's a lot of people that owning real estate is just about the ownership and the control of it. And it makes them feel like they have control. And, and as you know, you never have control if you've written it out to somebody else. Um, but th th nonetheless, the opportunity to make money from it is um, uh, extraordinarily high. So I'm going to show you in just a little bit, I'll pull up what's called an APOD. APOD is an acronym for Annual Property Operation Data. Like I said, you can pull these up, um, you can Google them, and they'll, there's different ones of them, all in different layouts, but they all do the exact same thing. And I'll show you kind of what they do so you have a good understanding of it. Um, <clears throat> but let's talk a little bit about the different um, uh, investment analysis that are out there. One is cap rate. Cap rate is a, is mainly used in the commercial world, but I'm hearing it more and more used in the residential world. Um, the reason it's mainly commercial is because it takes out financing. And in most residential investments, there is financing. It's not always the case in commercial, um, but a cap rate is just the net operating income divided by the value of the property gets what's called a cap rate. Um, so in net operating income is something you have to be able to calculate, which is by the way, what the APOD does. It's, it's calculating, um, uh, the net operating income or NOI is what it's often called, the NOI. Um, and I'll show you how to calculate that. It's real simple. It's real easy. And once you know how to do it, you'll forever know how to do it. It's not, uh, it's like, kind of like riding a bike. You don't fall off very easily because it's not complex at all. Uh, a cash on cash return, which is always misunderstood, um, 
when I talk to people, because it's really a percentage and a cash on cash return is, is dividing the money that you invested in the property um, by the annual cash flow before tax. So once you can, you can, you've got to be able to factor what's the cash flow in the property before tax implications. And that's going to be divided into what is your initial cash to purchase the property that gives you a cash on cash return. There's also one called an equity buildup. And what the equity buildup does, it takes the money you invest in the property again, same number you would use on a cash on cash. How much cash did you put in? And, and it's divided by the amount of principal buildup you get from the first year paying down the mortgage. So since you're paying down the mortgage, some of that payment is principal and it pays off the mortgage. Whatever amount of the mortgage you paid off divided into that initial cash investment gives you what's called the equity buildup. Um, and then we do a before tax um, rate of return and after tax rate of return as, as percentages. We won't do that today. It just takes too long, but we will do a cash flow um, um, year one cash flow as our return. And that's what the APOD looks at. Um, and by the way, so the biggest advantage that people, this, that we're not going to really talk about all of these things, but the big advantages to investing in real estate instead of many other investments is, is it's really fourfold. It's appreciation in the property, which you all understand. Appreciation is high some years and it's low some years and some years it may be negative. Um, we're approaching a time period where we may see some pullbacks on appreciation, but as long as there's a shortage of housing in certain market ranges, you're not going to see much pullback in prices. Um, in areas where there is um, extra inventory or in higher end price ranges, you may see some pullback where um, it doesn't appreciate for a few years. I will tell you, on average, NAR has been tracking this for a long time. And the average appreciation annually is about 6.2%. And that's factored over a 30-year time period. So if you look at any 30-year window of time, many times um, um, the, the, when I say that, the, the, the tracking could be any 30-year period. And they almost always include some recession and some um, really good appreciable time periods where you have 20 25% and some in maybe negative five or six correcting some of that. Um, equity buildup is another reason people like real estate because you can borrow money to invest in real estate. When I say that, um, you can borrow money to buy stocks, but you have to have enough money for what we call a, um, a, a cash call or um, a capital call, where if the stock goes down in value, they will want you to hold a certain amount of cash to be able to make up the difference in the value of the stock if you borrow money to buy stock. So it's a lot harder to buy stock. You don't, you don't get this fixed interest rate for 30 years the way we do with real estate. Um, and everybody should know that you can own up to 10 properties in 30-year fixed mortgages in your personal name. So up to 10. Past 10, you have to go into in-house bank loans, and they're going to be shorter um, loans. But up to 10 properties, you can have long-term finance loans. Um, one of, the, one of the other reasons people invest is because of cash flows, um, because if, and most of my investors are cash flow investors. If I show them this APOD and it has a positive cash flow at the end of the year, most of them want to buy the property. Now, the problem with that is, is that cash flow is tricky because I can make any property cash flow. It's just a matter of how much money they put down. 
If it's not cash flowing at 20% down, well, then you can put 50% down and get it to cash flow. If it's not cash flowing at 50% down, you can put 80% down and get it to cash flow. So I can make almost any property cash flow, but we have to start from the premise of how much money are you wanting to put down? And I encourage all of my investors to not invest until they have 20% down on the investment. And so I base it from that point and try to stabilize cash flow from that point for them. And then the last one, which we won't talk about that much, is um, tax advantages. And when I say tax advantages, I'm talking about the fact that you get to depreciate um, off the improvement value of the property. You get to depreciate off capital improvements. Um, you get to write off repairs um, and certain expenses or deductions. Your interest um, deductions on the note gets to get you get to write off. You have tax write-offs. Um, and all of those things add up to significant additional savings um, for investing in real estate. And by the way, um, I always hate to say this out loud because it's, it, I don't, I never want anybody to misinterpret the reason why I say something. And I don't want this to be interpreted as me saying something about my financial situation, but I, I want to explain something to you, how important tax write-offs are in investing in real estate. My investments in real estate, which I owe, I, I don't have a, what I did back in 2007 and eight going into the recessionary period, because I had to sell off a whole bunch, but I probably have about, about 10 million in, in properties. And that 10 million in properties equates to in tax savings and me having about $160,000 of deductions in taxes before I have to pay tax. Now, listen to what that means. <clears throat> because I'm a qualified real estate practitioner, as many of you would be, and because I own that much in real estate because of the depreciation and the other tax write-offs, I get to make about $160,000 in profit or commissions before I start paying taxes because that $160,000 is all write-offs from my real estate investments. So I'm, and I want to explain to you that the reason why real estate for me is so important is it saves me significant tax dollars. I mean, significant tax dollars. We're talking $30,000, $40,000 a year in tax savings um, because I've invested in real estate. And for many investors out there, that is one of the reasons why they look at real estate as an investment because it does have tax savings and it can roll into a lot of big advantages for them. Although as a real estate practitioner, you have much greater opportunity for write-offs than does the average investor who's not in the real estate business. And that has to do with what we call passive loss rules, which don't, it stops certain investors from being able to write off against their active income. <clears throat> you being real estate agents um, aren't trapped in that scenario in the same way. So um, what I want to do, um, um, I'm going to calculate, I'm going to show you how to calculate the net, net operating income. I'm going to teach you how to calculate the cash flows. And I'm just going to go through the form with you real carefully. So I'm going to share the screen. So if you can't see a screen, this would be the time to find one. It doesn't mean you have to have a screen because I'll describe it along the way. But can you see that? Everybody nod your head that I can see. I'm trying to readjust my view here. Can't see all of you, but I can see most of you. Okay, can you all see the uh, Excel? Nod your head, yes, Philip. So I know. Okay, good. Okay, so I put this one together this morning just for the fun of it. Um, again, 
there are a lot of them out there. Um, I, I Googled this morning just to see, and all I did was Google APOD, A-P-O-D. Um, you can actually um, also Google annual property operating data, and you can get tons of these. They're Excels. Um, <clears throat> they all do basically the exact same thing. So um, no fear in getting the right one or the wrong one, because they're going to do virtually what I'm about to show you. So they start off with, and I always put an address and a date on mine because I don't want a client to come back later and say to me, um, hey, Dale, you know, you gave me this deal. This doesn't work today. Well, I can then point at the date. So I did that two years ago for you. And, and yes, the market's changed. So it's, you know, it's just like a survey. It's copyrighted by the date and the actual address that I'm using. So they can't point to it later and try to force me to justify numbers at a later point in time. Um, this top half of the screen, I'm going to show you there's a bottom half and there is a top half. And the top half is basically just the mortgage. And all it's doing is running the mortgage amount here. And so it's what was the purchase price? $275,000. I'm going to change this acquisition costs um, to $5,000. So acquisition costs would be the how much cash are they bringing for the closing costs? I mean, the you know, everything that they're charged from the bank to get the loan from the title company to uh, close. So the purchase price on this example is 275. And I actually, um, for those of you that live in an area that you can't buy a $275,000 house, I suggest to you that there are plenty of them in Arkansas. This is a, a recent one that I did for somebody in Little Rock of all places, which is a heavy populated area. So if you can buy a $275,000 investment in Little Rock, I am sure you can buy them across the state. Now, the rents may be different in different areas, so you've got to make sure you've got <clears throat> rents that are common. In my area in Northwest Arkansas, um, uh, some of you that are up here, Janet, and some of you would say we can't buy a $275,000 house for anything. As a matter of fact, writing an offer on a $275,000 house would mean you and 60 other people are all going after the exact same house. Um, and you're going to overpay and the rent's probably not going to match what it is that um, would make it cash flow. That's okay. Um, you got to know your area. I know I can drive not too far from here and still find good investment properties. They still exist. Usually within 60 miles of any city, um, I've been able to find really good investment properties. Even in Chicago a few weeks ago where I was at, same thing occurred. I had to get a little further than 60 uh, miles out, but I got about 90 miles out from Chicago and all of a sudden I could buy investment properties and they all cash flowed again. So it's not too far from most major cities or most areas that you can find properties. So the first thing is, is we put in the purchase price. The second thing we put in is the acquisition costs. That's those closing costs on the settlement statement, cash they have to bring to the table to close, and then their mortgage. And <clears throat> this one's set up where I can have... Um, um, more than one, a first or a second mortgage if I need it. But I'll put 80% loan, which 80% of 275 is $220,000 on 7% interest rate for 30 years. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about the interest rate. Interest rates are fluctuating right now. Um, if you do a, an investment property for 30 years fixed, it's going to typically be about three quarters of a point higher than what you could get on an owner-occupied home. So if the owner-occupied home is six and a half, you're going to pay seven and a quarter. If owner-occupied home is, you know, six and three quarters, you're probably going to pay about seven and a half because an investment property is considered higher risk by the banks. Therefore, they charge you a higher amount for it. Um, 
You can though <clears throat> get low and I always, so my joke with people is people all the time say, well, interest rates are high. I'm going to wait to buy until they come down. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. And here's why it doesn't make sense. What's the danger of interest rates going down? If I lock in and get a loan at seven and a half percent interest and they go down next year, what am I going to do? I'm going to refinance. I mean, I can always refinance if I get a high interest rate. Does it cost me a little money? Sure it does, but I'm not trapped long-term into this high interest rate. I can always refinance into a lower interest rate. However, let's say I lock in at 7% right now and um, it goes up to eight and a half. Isn't it always to our advantage to go ahead and get the loan wherever it's at? Because can't you almost always refinance to a lower and keep yourself protected from a higher? I mean, and I do, I understand there are costs to refinancing, but the cost to recoup a, a refinance is about two years, about 18 months to two years, depending on which lender you're using. So if I can recoup that because of, and it depends on how, how much of a drop there is in the interest rate, but in general, I'm not going to refinance over a quarter percent drop, but I'll refinance over a full point drop or three quarters of a point drop. In three quarters of a point drop, I can recoup that in a couple of years. If it's a full point, I can recoup it in, in uh, um, uh, less than that. So again, I want you to always think about talking to your buyers and especially investors about, hey, it's okay to lock in at whatever interest rate it is because you can always refinance and it goes down. Um, you, you cannot refinance to a lower interest rate if the interest rate goes up. Um, and I know you all know that and I overspoke it, but this is automatically calculating for me a 7% on a 30-year term um, at $1,463.67 being the principal and interest payment. Does not include taxes and insurance, just the P-I-T, P-I, not the T-I. Um, oops, I guess I didn't turn my phone down. Give me a second here. Well, it is turned down. Huh. That's never happened. That's the weirdest thing. It's turned, my volume's turned off and it's ringing anyway. Huh. Now that all y'all know that, you probably start um, calling me while I'm teaching so you can just make fun of me. I don't, now that throws me. Now I don't know what to do because it makes my think my phone. I didn't do anything different for my phone. I did do the new update. So I guess the new update probably has something in it. Um, and there's Alicia calling right now just to test it again. It's not working. Yes. Thank you, Alicia, for testing the theory. It did it on my office phone transfer. So you might try the 582-3200 number 479. That one might make it ring. But I turned the volume all the way down. So you're good luck on making it happen again. Um, so let's talk about mortgages again. This I'm basing this on most investment properties. I tell people 30-year fixed mortgages for at least their first 10 properties. So they know what the payment's going to be. It's not going to fluctuate on them. What happened to me in 2007, going from 2006 and 2007, is um, with my partners and myself, we had, I mean, we had quite a few rental properties, but because we had more than 10 rental properties, um, most of the rental properties I had were not in fixed 30-year mortgages because I could only have in-house bank loans. Well, when it came time to refinance those, which they were on three-year notes, typically, um, some of them were on two-year notes, um, and then the bank came back to me. 
and they wanted at that time property values had dropped and they wanted me to put more cash in so that I kept it at 80 percent equity so if the pro if a two hundred thousand dollar property dropped to being worth 180 they wanted another twenty thousand dollars um, for me to refinance so they they took a lot of my cash and forced me to end up selling properties at a lower um, price than I would have normally sold had I had 30-year fixed mortgages where that wouldn't have fluctuated because I wouldn't have any problem renting during the slow time as a matter of fact one of the things that we know and one of the things that I've enjoyed so much is is that when times get tough more people rent and typically rent prices go up so investment properties are good in, in tough times because rent, rent becomes easier. Um, you may have to adapt some of your properties along the way. But here's this form. And all the top is, get my cursor back over, is the mortgage. So it's just calculating how much is your mortgage on 80% loan and how much extra cash. So let's calculate real quickly here, how much cash did we put into this property? We put 5,000 down as cash at closing plus our down payment, the difference in 275 and 220, which is 55,000 plus this 5,000 would be $60,000 invested to buy this property. <clears throat> so in this property, $60,000 is the amount of cash being invested. And that's important because when we do a cash on cash return, we need to know how much cash we actually invested. I'm gonna scroll down to the bottom half of the screen right here. So here we are gonna factor our net operating income. And net operating income is real easy to factor. It starts with what's your gross scheduled income. That means what is the maximum potential rent you could get if it rents all 12 months and you collect all the rent it could collect. So if this one rents at 2,300 for 12 straight months, it would make 27,600. However, we know that it doesn't actually rent for 12 straight months without some vacancy because when they move out, you've got to move the next person in. There's always some vacancy on average, although vacancy is low right now. <clears throat> I normally would use 5% here, but I'm going to use 3% because <clears throat> the way we've been able to turn things over, it just hasn't had that much vacancy along the way. As a matter of fact, my vacancy rate's really close to zero over the last five years, simply because there's been more um, people wanting to rent the properties that we have than there are available properties. But you take the gross scheduled income, you take out whatever percent of vacancy, and you say, well, where do I find that? Well, it's real easy, call a property manager. Um, and just ask them, say, what's the, what is the current um, vacancy allowance? In Northwest Arkansas, we do the Skyline Report from the university that's in my finance department where I teach. Um, and we publish the average um, vacancy allowances. Many of your areas, I don't know if Carmel's does this, they probably have a, they probably factor um, vacancy also, but there are different property management companies that can also tell you just what the average is. And if you can't find that, um, go to the um, go to the National Association of Realtors and look up the national average. That'll at least give you a place to start because you can get a national average along the way. So you take out so this twenty seven six times three percent is eight hundred twenty eight dollars. So I'm going to pull that from my gross income, and that gives me a gross operating income. That's where I can start spending money to maintain this property. So I then go through and just list all the expenses. And this is as simple as it gets. I've categorized mine out. You, all the different um, um, versions of uh, APODs have different means of doing this, but they all do the same thing. The first thing I list is property taxes. 
Second is insurance. Um, in this case, I have the taxes at 2,500 and the insurance at 1,700. This is annual expenses. <clears throat> if you're paying utilities for your clients, you would list that here. Repairs and maintenance. If you have no history, what I tell people is I take 10% of the gross income <clears throat> if the house is over 10 years old. If the house is new, less than 10 years old, I usually take 5%. So it'd only be like $1,330 or, or $1,430 is all I would do for repairs and maintenance if it was a newer house. But I would know that I would have to change and adapt that as the house aged also. It just takes more money as the house gets older um, because you get... You have roofs, you have HVAC, you have hot water heaters and things of that nature. If you're doing the yard service, you would put that in here. If you're making your tenants do it, you don't have to put it in there. If you're charging a management fee, it would go right here. If you're managing your own properties, that would be zero. If you're doing it for another client, be sure you charge them um, for your management or whatever management they might have to pay for. If it's in a subdivision, is a POA or HOA fee, that goes here. If you have advertising costs to get it rented, I don't put mine in here because we do ours in bulk and each of the property management one takes such a little amount that's not even hardly worth factoring. Um, and because vacancies are so low right now, we don't have to spend as much time marketing them. Any other expenses you would put here? I put 300 just as random expenses. Um, those could be money that costs to evict somebody if you have to evict or things that add up over time. Um, but you may have zero in there and that's fine. If you have zero, I just put 300 in here just for safety reasons. Um, that gives us a total operating expense of 7,260. So we have this 27,6 potential income. We take out some vacancy. We got 26,772. We add up all these expenses and which are 7,260. We subtract that from the 2672. And we have 19,512 of a net operating income. So to get the cap rate, you could just take this 19,512 and divide it by 275 and get a cap rate because it's the net operating income divided by the value gives you a cap rate. Um, but the net operating income also for us, because we have a mortgage that we're paying up here, 1463 has to pay for the mortgage. Well, the mortgage, if you take 1463.67, multiply it by 12, you'll find it's $17,563.99 per year. So you take the 19,000 of net operating income and you subtract your debt service, gives you a cash flow of 1948. And 1948 is going to be your cash flow before tax. Now, this number here is what's used to calculate a cash on cash return. So you remember how much money we put into this property? It was $55,000 in down payment and $5,000 in closing costs or $60,000. So if you divide this 1948 by 60,000, you'll get a cash on cash return of 3.25%. And equity buildup, remember, uses the same number, the 60,000 we put into it. And it looks at how much principal payment we paid down by making our payments. Mine calculates it for me. It's $2,235 of principal pay down. That divided into the $60,000 gives us 3.72% equity buildup on the year. So if somebody asks me what's the equity buildup, I can quickly calculate it. 
They asked me what the cash home cash return is and I can quickly calculate that also. And by the way, that's not a very high cash home cash return. Um, not at all. And it's because right now we have to pay maximum dollars for properties. This same property, um, I probably could have bought for 200,000 just a year and a half ago. And by the way, what if I did buy it for 200,000? Let's just switch it. This is where it gets fun <laughs> because your clients may say to you, um, well, I don't like that cash on that cash return. Then let's see what we need to offer then. Let's offer them 200, see what happens. Now, all of a sudden I have $6,738 of cash flow before tax and my cash on cash return goes up to almost 15% simply because I got at the right price. Well, that's probably a better return than he'd want. He'd be happy to. But what if I could make an offer of 235? Let's see what happens to the return. Now we're getting about where most of my investors would be happy. They're still getting 4,500 of annual cash flow, but the cash on cash return is still 8.66%. So that's better than they're getting in a money market account. It's probably better than they're getting in the stock market. So they start feeling really good about that and knowing that they're also getting some equity build up on top of it. So if you kind of combine those, um, you know, you've got 12, 13% worth of return for them on equity and cash on cash. So this is what I call an APOD. This is where it gets really fun um, showing clients. I'm going back to the original numbers. Oops, not 275. How different things can look. Now, you may say, um, okay, so 275, Dell, this one doesn't quite work. Um, I want a little more positive cash flow then can we rent it for 2,500 instead of 2,300? And if we could, we can factor in that monthly rent at 2,500. And then all of a sudden, here we are back again with a positive cash flow of 4,200 and a cash on cash return of 7.13. And you see how easy it is to talk to them about the different possibilities that exist. You may say at 2,500, our vacancy rate will probably go up a little bit because we're charging a higher rent. So we got to factor that in, which lowers it back down to only 36.76. Now, I want to be real honest with you. Most of my clients, this is a positive number with an 80% loan, they're ready to buy. So I want to make sure I give them good numbers, numbers that they can analyze, numbers that they understand. And I give them a chance to really look and, and make sure that they're happy with what it is. And I can factor this three, four, five different ways. I can say, okay, what if we make an offer of 265 and get that accepted? How does that look? We come down, we say, okay, that really improves. What if we can't give it 2350 on the rent? And then that puts us at 2600 of, again, um, cash flow before tax or, or positive cash flow year one. Does that make sense for those of you that are there? This is not hard. Does it seem difficult? I'm real quickly before I go, I was going to look up the chat real fast. I see y'all posted some things. Um, yes, you could put termite in there also. Somebody put in there termite or accounting fees. That $300 that I have in there, um, that would be my term my accounting fees if you have accountants that that work on the property definitely for sure um oh i just saw that um brandon 
I'm sure that's what happened. Everybody calls me three times in a row. Um, so Cindy went on the, um, the actual money paid, like the down payment. Um, it's, it's, <clears throat> you probably caught it. Yeah. You, you saw that I, I mentioned it there. The, uh, when we're talking about <clears throat> cash invested, we're talking about all of the cash from down payment and everything else on the settlement statement too. So the settlement statement is the acquisition cost, and then your down payment is the difference in your purchase price and your mortgage. And so all the cash you bring in is what we're looking at when we're doing a cash on cash return. Same thing with equity buildup. We're looking at how much buildup we have from our actual cash invested. Because really, to be honest with you, that's what most of our um, investors are wanting to look at is, I got some money. Here's my money. Where do I put it so that I can make money on it? And so that's what we're helping them do is understand exactly how to invest that money as best they can along the way <clears throat> and, and, enjoy, and enjoy the fact that they understand where that comes from. Now, um, I, I have uh, plugged this um, fairly easily for you, and I've shown you um, how easy it is to poke in different numbers. I'm going to play with it again for just a second because the people have been asking me about larger home. Um, and I had one the other day, somebody has a $395,000 home. <clears throat> it cost them about 6,500 in closing costs. The rent on this one would be $3,500 is a larger house. It's nice. However, taxes are about 4,500 and the insurance is about 2,900 and they are doing the yard care on it because they're scared that the tenants won't do the yard care, which is a, coming out to about $400 a month, um, which ends up being about 5,000 a year after they do some um, winterization of the sprinkler systems and they are paying management. I'm going to say 10% on that one. And there's a $350 annual HOA fee. So now I have added in a lot of numbers. It's a $395,000 house, 80% loan. They can rent it for $3,500, but I have additional expenses. <clears throat> Watch what happens here. Their net operating income is $20,100, but the annual debt service is $25,000 because this is $2,100 times 12. They end up with a negative $5,000 on this particular property. As soon as I talked to them and showed them the negative 5,000, I said, wait, hold on. How, why do we have a negative 5,000? I said, well, a lot of it is because you're doing the lawn care for them. And they said, well, we can't get 3,500 out of it if we don't. And besides that, if we don't do the lawn care, they ruin the lawn. Um, they don't uh, um, take care of the flower beds. They end up spending $5,000 to get them redone anyway. Um, and so we start looking, is there anywhere to save money? And the only place to save money really is in management and managing it themselves. And of course they don't want to do that, obviously. So the real, the, the reality is the reality. Um, they, in this particular case, um, do not have a positive cash flow. So I, my next question to them is, is I take 5,000, oh, look at my calculator here, just $5,128. And I divide that by 12 
and that's $427.33 per month. And I say to him, I said, okay, so let's look at this in a different way, just to consider it as an investment property. I said, would you, to own this property, be willing to put $430 a month into it to be able to own it? Same way you put money into your stock market every single month to have money in your stock market. Well, this house is going to appreciate in value. Um, we're going to have some equity build up. And in this case, 3.75%, you're going to make $3,210 every year in paying down the mortgage. Um, and so are you willing to invest $430 a month into owning this property? I said, if it appreciates at 6%, 6.2 being the, the average, we're talking about a $395,000 house. So I take 395 times 0.06. I said, that's $23,000 a year plus your equity buildup of 3,210. If I divide that by 12, that's uh, um, um, $2,242 every month that you're actually getting um, as a result of appreciation and um, equity buildup. And that's before we even talk about your tax advantages. And with tax advantages, you're probably gonna have even more money I'm coming back. So is the is it worth $430 a month for you to pay into this house to be able to own it? And that's where it I'm turning it back to them to make the decision. I'm not, I don't want to make the decision for them. I want them to be able to make the decisions for themselves. And I want them to be able to decide, okay, great. This is this is um uh a good scenario for me. It's a good investment for me. And this is the real return. And I can print these things off. I mean, I print them three or four different pages of scenarios. So they have a best case scenario, a worst case scenario, and some average scenario. I'm going to stop the share so I can open it back up. And I was going to go back to the tax part of it just for a second. Um, I don't want to go deep into the taxes, but I want you to understand that um, so all the interest payments on the mortgage. So if you have a in that last one, a, a $2,200 mortgage, you're, you've got $1,700 in interest payments every month, which if 1,700 times 12, at least in the first is $20,400 in interest write-offs. And by the way, this is for business. It's for investments and expenses. So it's not like your personal home, where in your personal home, you... Um, um, don't have the opportunity um, to write off interest because of the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, where some of you aren't able to right now because of you get this real high standard deduction. It's not the case in business and in real estate. You're going to get to write that off. So there's 20,400 of write-offs, which could save you around seven or eight thousand dollars in taxes. You also get to write off the property taxes. In this case, like on this one, maybe it was four thousand dollars. So um, I can add that to that. Um, then you have depreciation. So we've already got 25,000 worth of write-offs and depreciation is going to be 395,000. I'm going to say it's worth, the improvements are about 80% of that, which is 316,000. And if I divide that by depreciation rates, um, which is 27 and a half years on real estate, I'm going to get about $11,000 a year of additional write-offs. So now I'm up to $36,000 in write-offs. And then remember those repairs that I had? Um, so the repairs are going to also um, give me another few thousand dollars. So now I'm up to about 40,000. 
So I'm going to save probably another seventeen or eighteen thousand dollars every year in real money in tax savings that I don't have to pay in taxes. Um, so don't let a negative um, cash um, um, uh, flow be the end of the conversation. Make sure they know that there are other things. And you all are an accountant, and I know that, but. But as y'all are some of the best real estate agents out there, and you understand how to tell them information that they can talk to their accountant about. And so that's the goal is that you tell them, hey, talk to your accountant about what tax savings you might realize and understand that we as qualified real estate practitioners, we get to write off all the tax write-offs. For them, if they have extra write-offs over here in their passive bucket, they can't automatically pull them over here and write it off against their active income. Say they're a doctor and their medical income. However, <clears throat> those write-offs build up over here in this passive bucket to when they can use them or when they sell. So when they sell, they get all of the losses that were unrealized over the years. So they will get them. They just might not get them immediately on the year um, that they um, earn them. I'll give you an example of that. Um, I had a real estate partner um, that we own. He's an attorney um, for a big law firm and we own property together. Well, we've owned it since 2006. We sold it last year and he really wanted to sell last year. I didn't want to sell because since 2006, I've been taking the tax write-offs every single year. So when we do sell, I had some tax ramifications, um, you know, to pay capital gains and recapture tax on some of it. He, however, had been saving up all of his losses every single year since 2006, and he had this big bucket of losses. So when we sold, he virtually was going to have zero tax liability, and I was going to have about $30,000 worth of tax liability. And he really wanted to sell because the market was high. I really didn't want to sell because I didn't want all the tax liability. And ultimately, we sold because me being in real estate, him being my partner and taking my advice throughout time period, I couldn't go against him for my own personal advantage. But know for yourself, know for you, if you're married and you have a spouse, you can qualify a spouse and their income to move the passive loss over. So the good news is, is you can, if you have a spouse making other income, the losses that you qualify as a qualified real estate practitioner can also write off against your spousal's income also. And by the way, there's specific rules to qualify um, to be able to do that. Basically says this, um, you have to spend um, at least 750 hours a year in the real estate business. Most of you all do that by the second week of the year. Um, so no problem there. You also have to spend 500 hours working on the property itself that you are um, going to take those write-offs and move them against your active income. So you've got to do some self-management. If you're having somebody else manage all of it, it's not going to work. Um, you also, if you have multiple properties, can aggregate those properties so that they're treated as one. So like for me, if I have 30 properties, um, I aggregate them on my tax return and the IRS teaches them as one. So I have to prove 500 hours on all of them together because they're aggregated. Um, and that's pretty easy. And then the, the last little qualification is, is that at least half of the income you make must be made in real estate related activities. So let's use me for an example. Um, let's say that I could make... Um, 60% of my income teaching and only 40% from selling real estate. 
I would lose my qualification because I was making it through education. Now that's not the case. I only make about 10% of my income teaching. I make all of my money selling real estate or majority of it. So I say all that to say, um, you have to know how you qualify. You have to know um, when you qualify um, and know that some of your investors won't actually qualify sometimes. Okay, I, that pretty much was where I wanted to take everything. Is there any questions? And you can unmute and ask questions if you have them because there's no reason in dragging this out too long because um, I've hit most everything I wanted to hit, but I wanna make sure that you all didn't have anything extra. And I'm also gonna pull up the chat window too for those of you that, so that I can see it if you had anything. Dale, I had a question. Sure, if, Sarah. On your example before the $275,000 house, or let's say that's a, a, a duplex or something, let, what if there were like $75,000 in repairs that needed to be done and then you could raise the rate or raise the rents? Is, can that chart you showed us factor those costs and returns in it? And it, how would you do that? Yeah, so I think I would factor what it would be worth after I did those repairs. So let's use my $275,000 house. And if I'm going to do $75,000 worth of work, is it going to be worth $350 now? Maybe it's going to be worth $400. And then I would put the purchase price at the value after the repairs. And then I would keep the mortgage down there. It may end up being 65%, but if I'm putting that money in cash, the extra 75, I got to make sure the difference um, between the mortgage and the actual purchase price is correct, what I'm actually borrowing. Um, so instead of it just being an 80%, I might punch in the actual number of mortgage. And then the difference will show up because 400,000 is the purchase price after the repairs. And the other way you could do it, and some people do this, they put it in the acquisition costs um, and they put in that extra 75,000 into the acquisition cost. The problem with that is, is that doesn't show the new value of the home. So I want to run the value of the home up to what it's going to be worth also after those repairs. Because Generally, if you're going to do repairs, you're buying it here and it's worth here. So I just take the purchase price up to where it will be worth and put that cash in the difference in the mortgage and the, the purchase price. That makes sense. Okay. Anybody else? And, it, and I, I saw a few of you saying you'd like to have a copy of the APOD. If you will email me, dale at dalecarlton.com, because I lose these uh, chat. Um, I don't have access to them as soon as we close down. So dale at dalecarlton.com. Um, and my name's in my window there if you don't know how to spell Carlton. It's like the hotel or the cigarettes, whichever one you like better. Um, and uh, I'm happy to email to you. I've Mine has... Um, I'll have to pull out the formula. So give me a second, because I have about six other pages to mine in there that will be useless to you and it might confuse you. So I'll try to um, change mine up and uh, I'll I'll lock it so that you can't mess up the formulas, but it won't have a password. So if you want to unlock it and play with it and you're an Excel person, I'll, I'll remove the password so you can mess around with it. So, and and let me give credit where credit due on this. And this one I have is a uh, Pat Zaby gave to me um, Pat Zaby does in touch, um, systems and seminars. Um, he's a good friend of mine. So that's why I use it. Cause I like it and I know it, we use it in the CRS courses too. So, but it's not proprietary. I mean, there's, it's the same formula. It's just 
the design is the way he designed it. I kind of like it. I have one more question. Sure. At the beginning, you said, you know, there's always an investor with money to buy. So do you have any recommendations or suggestions on lead generation on how to market to or recruit or get investors in our sphere? Yeah. So that's the big thing is I, I started reversing it. I started looking for great properties to invest in. And when I run the numbers and I find one, then I just start working everybody I know. Um, and I start going through, Hey, I've got this great investment property. I can't find anybody that wants to buy it. And I just checking to see if you or anybody, you know, happens to have um, some cash they want to invest in real estate. And that, you know, it started off with my doctors, you know, they had extra money and then they would introduce me to somebody else when they didn't, because when they didn't want it, they love telling people, Oh, here's a good investment. So it turns out your clients love to tell other people about good investments because they feel like they get a win out of telling somebody. Um, so it, it really, Sarah, it doesn't take me that long to find a buyer if I find a good investment. So if you don't have a house to sell, you don't have a buyer, start scouring the MLS and start looking for good properties to invest in and then go find the buyer for the property. Um, and think of your own listings from that way too. You can, when you're selling the listing, you can tell them, says, we can try to maximize the value of this listing. However, at some point, um, we may have to lower the price if the market's not ready. And one of the places we might have a buyer is through an investment. And I'd like to set it up as an investment potential. Let me show you what those numbers would look like. Are you okay with me advertising these numbers at the right time? And so I convinced my sellers 